This episode of the Global Kidney Care Podcast was recorded live in Bangkok during the WCN 23 and is on renal disasters and ethical considerations. Hosted by Manjusha Yadla, who is the chair of ISN's social media team.
I'm not aware of any specific training course. I think the people that are most advanced in this in the world are actually in Turkey. I think Sadal can probably mention a little bit how well they managed to train all the people in their own teams because they just really, this time with the earthquake, just stepped into action and it was amazing how they, they managed in this earthquake. So she can explain a little bit how they do that if there's specific training. I think what we've tried to do in the ISN framework for dialysis for low-income countries, we've included something there about disaster preparedness, yeah. and we've tried to collect a lot of links from various societies because the ASN, the ERA, the ISN have all tried to contribute in all these disasters, and there are certain links there for patient preparedness, dialysis unit preparedness, yes. etc. But as far as I'm aware, no specific training or program, yeah. which um, the current chair, uh, incoming deputy chair of the um, ISN Disaster Task Force, Professor Sirhan Tugelar, who is currently the chair of the Turkey Renal Disaster Task Force, okay. just recently publishing is publishing a paper really calling for okay. a need for training in okay. CMEs yeah. because it's something that we're also realizing doesn't only happen somewhere else. Yes. It's happening more and more where all of us live and where all of us are practicing. Okay. Okay. It's not only now in earthquake zones, there's a lot of threats. Yes. And so I think definitely should be included in CME courses. I think it's a time to hold uh, some workshops or you know certain training programs so that people get a first thing is awareness and the knowledge about how to handle an emergency, how to handle a disaster, there is a management. So it's a time is need of the hour, I think we need to think about if not a certification course, at least hands-on training workshop or as you said certain training programs. What's your opinion about that? How could you handle that time when there was a massive earthquake in Turkey, how well, of course you have managed pretty well, we should congratulate the whole uh, country, it was managed very successfully, but how could you do that? How the success has arrived at you despite a massive threat? Yeah, I, I agree with you that we, have, we should have some programs, some courses and training courses right. uh, globally because it can affect all countries and it can happen all of a sudden. So man-made disasters can happen all in all countries. Yes. And even though you don't have a natural disaster risk factors. In Turkey, officially in medical schools, there is okay. not a topic like crash syndrome or crash, okay. uh, uh, crash injuries. But we have a kidney injury and also in uh, medical schools, people are learning about crash injury, crash syndrome. So uh, they are teaching our students about kidney injury after uh, crash syndromes. Okay. And it's very important, but besides uh, this, uh, we are very thankful to Dr. Shukri Sarar because uh, she's very successful in the management of the uh, previous earthquakes in Turkey and he published many articles. Right. And he uh, he also he was also uh, one of the uh, authors of the many uh, guidelines published by the right. European Society of Technology and also ISN. And uh, according to that, we are trying to give some small courses yeah. by the Turkish Society of Technology. Okay. And also, uh, during the mini courses and mini, uh, meetings, we were always talking about crash centers and right. how should we handle it. Prevent the, and the, yes, prevention, yeah. all the epidemic is always discussed in the uh, society. And uh, I think all of the nephrologists in Turkey right now know about uh, management the management of the injury yes. very well. Yes. Uh, the thing that we can all sometimes problems with the uh, consultation of uh, patients since they can be also 
uh, hospitalized in yeah. orthopedics and other okay. uh, infectious diseases units and everywhere. So, but by the way that we have enough number of nephrologists, uh, we can handle this also. Okay. Be, uh, in the last birthday, yeah. I'm very helpful about that. But uh, this is because that Shukusever and Salman is always they are always working about this, and we have been. Yeah, giving many lectures and seminars about that. Right. Nice. I think this should be a continuous process of yes. bringing in the guidelines, yeah. recommendations. And as well, what I was thinking, it also involves the allied groups like nurses and other paramedical personnel. So all the training should be a comprehensive training for the whole team so that we are able to handle the situation uh, from the point A to the point Z so that the delivery is uh, uninterrupted. The delivery of the medical care services is uninterrupted. Thank you. I just add one yeah, thing say that Professor Severe has been constantly harping on is data collection during a disaster because each time one needs to learn and refine the guidelines. Okay. So we're only learning from previous experiences. And so this is something again that he's really been a huge pioneer in pushing right. for this. Yeah. That during each disaster, and I believe you started on day two already to collect data yeah. this time. Yeah gather data to understand are we doing the right thing? Yes. Because what we're teaching we need to know is it right? Yes. And so I think this idea also of collect, having a presence of mind that somebody is also allocated to the task of making sure the data is collected is very important to know. Okay. Yeah. I hope to foresee a little recommendations and you know like certain guidelines that are applicable on the international uh, level so that you know uh, the burden of the injury should come yeah. down in they case of natural disasters. And even in the last earthquake, even though it was really bad, yeah. and uh, there are many cities affected, the data collection was started in the second day or something, yeah. and we have been collecting the data right now. We are going to finish the data collection in May, Set. end of Set. May, and we are planning to see the outcomes, yeah. long-term outcomes of these patients, and we are going to follow them. Yeah. Great, excellent. I think we have some insight after the data. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sipir. Thank you, Valley, for this course. So I move on. I think we should take the other course, course also into the uh, this thing. Evan, over to you for the questions. Yeah, thank you, Manisha. Uh, I would like to ask uh, Professor Sibel, what do you think? What do you think about the renal and non-renal implications of disasters? Okay. Uh, men main disasters and also uh, natural disasters. Okay. You, uh, you know, it's very important since we have a good effects of earthquakes and disasters and natural disasters and man-made disasters and we have also great effects of uh, disasters. When we look at acute effects, uh, as we all know, in, uh, in the aspects of nephrology, we have acute kidney injury to prevent we have CKD patients to prevent the progression of diseases and we have to handle them also. And also we have chronic patients who are on balance and PD. So the management of all of those are very risky since during these disasters people can be more vulnerable for the progression of disease. So uh, chronic kidney disease patients can become uh, kidney injury even though they are not affected in the first term. And also for the PDN, the hemodialysis patient is really risky since they can uh, just they can receive their treatments regularly. They can do their exchanges, so it's very important. But besides this, there's current effects, and which can affect all the population like hypertension, uh, anxiety disorders, uh, and depression. And later on, we, we saw that according to the studies, there are many people affected. 
lack uh, and they, um, they just uh, get hypertension and chronic heart disease. And anxiety, because of the anxiety disorders, people can stop taking their medications and they, they can just, uh, it can also affect their treatments. They don't want to go to dialysis treatments uh, because all, all of them uh, are linked to the anxiety. These are very important effects and not only for the patients and the population, also for the medical staff. Since we, we saw that according to the studies, medical staff was also affected by these um, natural disasters yeah. and these, these terms are really bad and people were affected really because they are out of natural, uh, out of ordinary life, we are facing many terrible uh, situations. So it's also affecting medical staff, so we have to also take care of them. And hypertension and, they are, uh, and diabetes is also increasing in these affected populations. Yes. Even diabetes is also uh, increasing in these populations after the earthquake. So it means that if we, are, uh, if we survive from an earthquake or a natural disaster or man-made disaster, or if we survive from a war, but we are still at risk of dying earlier. Long-term impacts yes. of the yes. that can happen. So having said that, I mean, are, there, are you also going to repeat the data of the impact on the yeah long-term impact on the patients as well as you know the serving technicians as well as yes, like, uh, at the time of the disaster definitely it would have been an anxious moment even for the technicians or the doctors to reach the places of diagnosis or anywhere to reach and all this and this also would have definitely an impact on them so yeah. we are also planning to collect that data as well or no yeah, we are not we were okay. planning about that but okay. we can collect yeah, the data. Yeah, yeah yeah i mean i think it has uh, what do you say valerie i mean i think i think this has a long-term impact yeah. i think i think probably we don't know like the way we are getting to know about the long-term impact of the covid starting from the vascular necrosis to so many other things to psychological things this natural disaster definitely will have an impact on the society, just not the patients, but also the medical staff. And Obviously, I think we should all agree on that. Um, I, think, I think one thing that we heard about this time was that um, there were donations of okay. containers right. in the disaster area where the healthcare workers could actually sleep. Yes, because there are houses also destroyed for people coming from other places to actually work. So I think there are definitely a lot of changes and I think as she mentioned in all these disasters there's an increase in admissions from a lot of other problems. Other problems. Because yeah, who knows why. It's just the anxiety that causes precipitation of hypertension. There are so many other things, infections also, yeah. I think yeah, thank you, thank you, uh Barbie and uh Sibel for those inputs. Over to Dr. Shikan for the yeah. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, my question is directed to Dr. Lakes. Uh, how should the governments be prepared? facing the challenge of disaster? Yeah, I think this is the biggest question. And I think there the government definitely needs to understand the risk, I think, in its areas. Needs to realistically understand the risk. Needs to understand which populations may be at more risk, which populations may be most vulnerable. And in general, for the, in acute disasters, governments seem to be taken by surprise a lot of the times. I think sometimes they can be um, Warrant. I think in North America they often know a hurricane is coming, you know, so they inform the population. Interestingly, even in North America, sometimes people don't evacuate even when they should, you know, so I think government should really be um, advising people in advance what they should be doing. And um, basically, I think 
informing the population, preparing the healthcare system, making sure the healthcare system has enough resources in place, and then also putting in policies. And sometimes you need emergency approval of various things. They need to also know who they can ask for help from outside because they need to develop a network so that they can get resources from elsewhere. Um, stockpiling, I think we'll discuss a little yeah. later, but I think certain amount of resources should be in place. Um, and then I think governments should also, and this is what happens in Turkey, I think they identify point people in various places. So maybe they delegate to a task force, but then this task force needs to be empowered. And then there should be drills and practicing yeah, yeah, know, walk, walk, and how, to, how to actually react if there is a disaster. To add on to this question, um, how can the uh, nephrology community influence and, and convince governments to take action when uh, their political uh, uh, ideas might be uh, 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 a bit long-sighted and they might not uh, see the imminent danger? Uh, so how do we convince them to have a disaster plan in place? I think probably most governments have some sort of a plan that from our perspective, they usually don't include our patients with chronic kidney disease, as yeah. you mentioned, transplant, dialysis, whatever, because they're a small proportion of the population, and I think so everybody's houses are destroyed yes. or whatever it is. So we, as oncologists, need to advocate that our patients are amongst the most at risk because of their frailty, because of their age, because of their comorbidities, because of their dependence, for example, in hemodialysis on life-saving access to a machine, electricity, water, every two or three days. So I think we need to just remind the governments, but also what we can do is we can be partners. Not to be passive and just say to the government, you need to take care of the kidney population. We need to say, how can we help you to look after our kidney population? So I think that's really where we just need to remind them of the vulnerability. I think the data collection is critical to yes. show them, because that's what happened in COVID. Suddenly people realized because of data collection in England and the UDI, the um, ERA collection, suddenly showed the world that the patients who had the highest risk of dying amongst the top few was dialysis and transplant patients. And then all of a sudden, when it came to be vaccinations, we did a survey through the ISN and DOPS and most countries actually were prioritizing patients with end-stage kidney disease, partly because of this, they realized their enormous vulnerability. So without the data, without showing that our patients were most vulnerable, nobody would have prioritized the patients. So it is really, we need to partner with the government, not be passive, and just expect them to do things. We need to come up with plans, proactive plans, and we can carry part of the burden sort of ask for resources yeah. but you know take on the responsibility ourselves I think of doing some of the leadership. And you dance force yes you also need to educate and make a co cooperation with the non-governmental organizations. It's very important because in Turkey they really work hard and it was a really big effect yeah. impact on the management of, management of the disaster. Disasters. So uh, non-governmental societies and organizations are very important. How do you see that? You know, I mean, is the time, don't you think, is the time that each country should form its own disaster task force for management of kidney disease patients? Because as you said, kidney disease patients are vulnerable. 
kidney disease patients with high mortality. So in the background of all these things, and you protect them, they have a little better survival. So in the background of all these things, don't you think it's the time that every country should form and frame certain policies regarding the disaster task force management for the kidney patients? I think everybody has to be local. Yeah. It can't be international. And for example, like right now in Syria, yeah. nobody can go in and help them. Correct. So they have they to deal with it themselves. Yes. So I think it's important. Every local country, because also they are the first people, they are on the ground already. Yeah. They don't need to arrive. And so I think necessary. Yeah. But how, they need how to do you think it's going to differ in the countries like Elysis and Elysis? Like India. India had a decent earthquake as well, but it was not disastrous. It was a mild seismic earthquake, which was centered in Afghanistan, a little impact, although not much mortality. But then uh, we are also created under the seismic zone in the part. So, LMI, coming back to the LMICs and LICs, how do you think with the restraint of the uh, constraint of the resources that are available, how do you think they can also form certain task forces and then, you know, uh, you know stockpiling and uh, sustenance of these vulnerable patients? How do you foresee on this? It's definitely challenging when it comes to the active group of vulnerability. It is the prioritizations of the government are definitely going to change as between LMICs and you're asking me? Yes. <laughs> but there I think exactly NGOs are critical. So MSF, for example, has been hugely helpful in most disasters. Um, they can come in quickly, they can set things up. The big question is whether or not they should set up services that were not there before. That's an ethical question. We have to face that in Haiti where they try to set up a lot of services that were not there and then the problem is at the end of the disaster the services go away and there's a right to do things. But that's another question. I think a lot of the low middle income countries need to potentially allocate a little bit of budget if they feel that yes. they're in a high yes. risk area, but they need to, I would say, identify partners who can then help them rapidly. And the WHO as well needs to be involved. I think there should be a global guideline, but also local guidelines is very nice, but they should be, I think these guidelines should be written by or organized by the the societies of each country. country. So first of all, each country has a nephrology society, oh, and yes, then yes. they have to work on this along the local. Yeah. This will be the best thing. And the thing that after disaster, the first aid is always coming from the people yeah. in the area. So yeah. I think people should be educated as well. The population okay. and also yes. the patients. The, the thing that we are forgetting always is the education of patients or the population. Okay. So I think non-governmental organization is very important since the first aid is always coming from the nearby people. Yeah, and the first excavation, most of the excavations and the uh, people are rescued by the friends the and the legends and the people, local yeah. people. So. I think this is the time that we need to think about advocacy about the disaster programs, you know, like to the public as well. Awareness, education yes. programs to the public. And also even schools. How to handle, schools. Yeah, how to handle, how to protect their, their own selves how to protect others and how to call for the medical help. All these things should come as a priority because we should be geared up. We should not have a massive, you know, I mean, loss of lives. If we face anything in future, I mean, of course, we should pray, we should not, but then we should be preparedness. The preparedness is the entity wherein I think the stakeholder is just not the, you know, doctor related or medical related community. The public also needs to be geared up. Yes, it should be started in the school. Yeah. First of all, to eradicate all man-made disasters, yes. people should be very tolerant. They should be uh, creating empathy for the others because I think I believe that we have to eradicate man-made disasters. Correct. Natural disasters we can be preparing for. 
them. Yes. It can be ready for them. But man-made classes should be educated. And this can this should uh, start from the school at the early ages of Education at the uh, I mean primary school itself probably yes. is going to throw some more knowledge. And I feel I don't know whether Valley and Sibyl agree with me. They should identify certain hotspots. We know now there are certain of course classical example is a seismic vulnerability. Yes. So these are hotspots. So in those hotspots, the reallocation of the resources should be done in a more appropriate way for the preparedness rather than you know equal distribution to the non-seismic and seismic area. So probably that identification is also important globally. Uh, and probably the coastal areas which are more prone for the hurricanes and tornadoes and all these things. So on these should come up the recent US snowstorm that we had which has also impacted you know the standstill of the life and all these things. So these things I think we uh, probably we should learn from the disasters that are happening and then we should be able to identify certain hotspots and try to reallocate. I'm not sure whether you agree with uh, these uh, thought or not but I think it's, it's probably better to do in such a way. So moving on, I think Ivan, uh, 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 I think that question is yours. Yeah. My next question is uh, to Dr. Valerie. Uh, with the increase in CKD population and also the increase in survival in dialysis patients, uh, which uh, measures or what do you think, or how do you think we can? Uh, reduce the, the impact in, uh, in, this, in these populations? Yes, I think it depends on the patient. I think patients who are living on dialysis, peritoneal or hemodialysis are probably the most vulnerable. Ideally, if you know that a disaster is coming, you could evacuate patients to a safe area where hemo patients, for example. PD patients, there's suggestions that they have least two or three stop weeks of stock yeah. at home. I think all patients should have enough medication with them. I think the other thing, and this is a, there's a, a, an infographic that's mm -hmm. in a commentary published in Nature Reviews Necrology. I think Raymond Van Holter was the first author recently, right. just showing with pictures that patients need to be aware of their medication, have enough medication, and also be aware what they should eat, yeah. what they yeah, should drink. You know, yes. patients are not passing any urine should be extremely careful with fluid intake. Because I think it's very likely, for example, the dialysis patients are going to miss dialysis treatments. Peritoneal dialysis patients have the risk of not being able to wash their hands properly, the hygiene when they're doing exchanges. They may lose electricity with their APD, so they need to be ready to do CAPD. If they're living in you know, shelters, it's yeah. going to be hard to have a clean area to prepare for PD. Similarly, the transplant patients are also at higher risk of infection. Patients should all be vaccinated well in advance. And then what I learned yesterday as well, in Turkey they evacuated the chronic patients who were unaffected mm -hmm. to other places, but they actually had to reduce their dialysis treatments to two hours, three times yeah, a week. Yeah, all of the first week, so they have to decrease yeah. the duration of the treatment because there are some acute cases, many acute cases, so but uh, yeah, we were careful about their diets and we always warn them about their uh, intake and the food. So that's, that's so, yeah. the point, like the yes. patients who yeah. use treatment might be compromised even if they were not the primary victims, yeah. there's risks and so they exactly would need to still not drink, not eat potassium, all these things so that they could still die, that, you know, be relatively healthy with only 6 hours or 12 hours of dialysis a week. Yes. So I think you know, these are the things to plan and then to 
educate the patient and the family member. And then also, always in these infographics, is the patients on hemo need to know how to turn themselves off the yes, machine. Yes, unhandle themselves. They because, can you know, it, can, it can happen at any time. And if the nurses are you know, busy trying to help the weakest patients, there are other patients that are relatively healthy. You can't just wait there now until everybody's off the machine one by one. Right. And the patients work to help each other. Yeah. And so the interface in dialysis should be also stuck to the walls. Uh, and everything keeps going in a perfect area. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, see, the, uh, actually, we're coming back to the same point of patient education, patient education, public, public education. It's, see, the depth of knowledge that needs to be imparted on the patient is increasing in a voluminous way. But then I think we need to do that. Unless we do that, we cannot attend to them at every point of the time of emergency. But at the same point, what is your opinion about home hemodialysis versus in-center dialysis? Do you think home hemodialysis would have been uh, probably a better option? I wouldn't say in the background of disaster, but then in a disaster, you foresee that the patient needed to go to the in-center. Uh, patient has uh, stockpiling of the bacteria, whatever he needs for the particular dialysis. And of course, affordability is the one that switches our thinking. But what is your opinion about home hemodialysis versus in-center dialysis in the time of the disaster? Home hemo is a bit different to home PD. I mean, I think a patient who's on home hemo and is doing home hemo, if he can still continue his home hemo in his own house, is stay. If yes, there is a safe house. Water. I have I think that's ideal because they're not taking the spot from someone else in the central houses. The only problem is that if a complication starts to happen, it might be diagnosed later. But most of the home hemo patients are very well educated. Yeah, excellent professional patients. I think they they learn very well. Patients are also well educated. And, uh, if they have enough supply of PD solutions, solutions. so we are, we are just always warning them to have at least two weeks long PD solution with them in case of disaster and in case of any uh, specific situations. Right. They can right. go on their PDs. Right. How did we use the tele services at this point of time, in the time of natural disasters? Definitely, tele is going to be a crucial one where the yeah, patient you know, can get connected to the doctor and then you know. Have a straight advice from yeah. the doctor. Because all the equipment, all the materials, and the solutions were also damaged in the earthquake. Right. So we just got the uh, solutions and every equipment from other cities which are not affected. And the, uh, the transport was very quick in Turkey, it was quick, we are happy. The first day, it was really uh, very hard to get to the region because, uh, because of the traffic and because of the uh, the damaged roads and everything, but later on, in the second day, you can transport everything to the region. So, and we also transport the patients to the nearby cities. I think it was an excellent management. We should all learn from the Turkey as to how to manage a disaster. Uh, management so that you know, I mean, with the ADAP and definitely preparedness is there. But, but you did mention tele, yeah, and I think that's a huge tool, right? Because yes. you can phone the patient, check up if they're fine, you could send them SMSs reminding them don't eat this, don't drink that, take your medicine, do you need medicine? Maybe if they needed things delivered, etc. Yeah, all so this is yeah. definitely crucial. No? I mean, yeah. if the telecommunications are reasonably, I mean, at least surviving in this sense, they are not damaged in the natural. We know that, yeah, we know that the patients are alive. One, we can suggest them 
what to take, what not to take, yeah. and when to connect, when to disconnect, where to go, and how to go. I mean, definitely, Delhi is going uh, to be a, uh, a room for us in such situations if we have to manage the patients of other organizations. Yeah, especially the patients are always in contact with their nurses. Yeah. It's very easier for them. But for the HD patients, for the hemodialysis patients, they need to know their treatments, like a mini epicurus, uh, a mini uh, summary of their treatment schedule yeah. with them. It should be also recorded in the uh, in the internet right. because when the it should be available yes, you yes. can take it from the internet or also website because uh, and they they need to get to their treatment schedule uh, immediately perhaps. Yeah, I think some yes. modules should be there, you know, patient modules on as to how to manage them. Uh, HD yeah. patient module, PD patient module. So they, they, so in they case can they, get yeah, in case of a disaster, but they should have stored it yeah. in their device and then they should be able to write. And that's a good one. I think we should take that. Yes, Milagros, you are your OG one, I think. Okay, yeah. hello, how are you? I think this question is to both of you. You talk about education, and education is really important on preventing disasters on or the events, the, the on the most vulnerable population. But how do we do this prevention on the Aki events, to prevent Aki events? As on Turkey earthquake, earthquake you're gonna evaluate the tools that you use and probably you're gonna recalibrate the situations that happen. But what, what can we do to, to prevent, to, to relieve these vulnerable situations? because everybody probably is going to be at risk to have an Aki event. And what can we do on the CKD population? How can we enforce not only the PD patients that are more, are the most educated on their treatment, but on the HD patients, like having a crisis inside the hemodialysis connection, or after not having the, the time to uh, access a hemodialysis center because they're like a hemodialysis uh, reference center and the amount of sessions are going to be smaller and how can we use like the incremental hemodialysis term in, in these situations? Yeah, okay. Uh, I think the, the most important thing that in that case of disasters, we yeah. try to prevent acute kidney injury. So we have to be very quick and we have to go on the site and all the physicians on the site should be educated. So there are some effects of uh, uh, disasters like traumatic and non-traumatic effects on, the, on kidney health. So the non-traumatic ones are like uh, shock, sepsis, uh, and cardiovascular events, yes. acute events, and uh, not especially big traumas can cause sepsis and shock. And also we have the traumatic effects like uh, crash injury and if it affects affecting the whole system it's called crash syndrome. So and also after crash syndrome if we have a uh, rhabdomyolysis and also we have we can have uh, intercompartment syndrome. So we have to be careful about that. In the first Hours. We check the patients, of course, after ABC, all the emergent uh, things. Uh, we check all the patients and we started the intravenous hydration as soon as we find the extremity while the patient is under the excavation. And uh, if you are trying to get the patient out of the building at 
wait for the army to reach, it will be very late. Yeah. So we started the, yes, uh, we started the early hydration with crystallites especially, and we avoid every kind of potassium containing fluids, and we get huge amounts of fluids at like one liter per hour. But if the excavation is what is looks like that you are going to get the patient under uh, more than two hours or something, we have to be very careful about the urine output and mm -hmm. we have to decrease the amount of water to later on. And the other thing that we saw in our patients, when the patients are uh, <coughs> hospitalized and getting to the hospitals, the uh, surgeons and the other teams can go on giving huge amounts of fluids to these patients. Mm -hmm. It's very important that we have to check the urine output uh, and if the patient is under it, we have to decrease the amount like less than one liter. And we have also uh, seen some patients that they are they were given like 10 liters, even though it was after three yeah. days after the excavation mm -hmm. and they were hospitalized. So even hypovolemia, but also hypervolemia is very, yeah. very, very dangerous for these patients. So we have to be very careful about IV hydration. And mm -hmm. also the other thing that we, we should avoid uh, colloids and manitol if the patient is anuric and we have to avoid all kinds of nephrotoxic agents, contrasts you know, for these patients and we have to be very careful about the follow of the patients. We avoid facilities in most cases, we have to be very careful about sepsis and uh, if we are going to give IV antibiotics to the patients you have to uh, arrange it or according to the you, patients, the kidney functions. So these are the important things. Definitely. I think there's a lot of experience coming from Turkey because that was a recent one that happened. But I think the Latin American countries are also more prone for the earthquakes. I think you agree with me, they were uh, about near back or something. There was a, an earthquake as well. So there were natural disasters as well. So you both came from Latin American countries, Mexico. So how do you foresee, how do you, I mean, look into the aspect of management of this? Uh, AKI or probably prevention of AKI in uh, in Latin American countries. Probably we we are so used to like preventing the acute yeah. the acute disasters. But I think as you have all told to talk about education is like the most important thing on runoff disasters, and I think uh, every society has to work on on it. Uh, how to nephrologists get involved into the policies of how to attend uh, CKD uh, patients, uh, how to reflect that these vulnerable patients need a, a really primary attention, and how to prevent ACI events. I think that's something that on med school and on nephrology school yeah. is still under work, and I think we as a society and members of a society, we have to uh, unify ideas uh, on special global guidelines, yes. but probably the reality of these guidelines are not going to be the same in Turkey and Mexico yeah, yes, and yes. in yes. India. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, it should be different in each of the areas, but then with the experience that uh, uh, certain countries have, I think the other countries also should learn. Not just the guidelines should be similar to them, but at least the learning is there of the president so that, you know, I mean, the, the loss of lives is uh, reduced to as minimum as possible. So moving on, I think, uh, uh, yeah, uh, over to Dr. Srikant for the next question uh, to Dr. Sibel. Dr. Sibel, my question is directed to you. And before I actually go into the question, I want to 
thank you for bringing out a very important point. You said that man-made disasters have to be prevented at all costs. And you pointed out uh, that school, school education is an important aspect in uh, educating children so that this can be prevented. Uh, I'd want you to, uh, you know, uh, talk about it a bit more. And uh, the second part of my question is, uh, you know, you had been in an earthquake very recently. So can we discuss a hypothetical case of a crush injury of, say, Mr. Thomas, who had a crush injury and he has AKI. What are the primary and secondary measures that can be taken before the patient is shifted to a specialty center of, of, for treating AKI? Yeah. Uh I actually, uh, in a few minutes ago, I so I tried to summarize the things that we are we have to be careful about the IV hydration. We we have to avoid every kind of hypovolemia and hypovolemia, and we have to be careful about facetomies because after facetomies there is a risk of sepsis, and the, these patients are vulnerable for every kind of infection shock. So in the first case, we try to prevent the acute kidney injury, and in the second case, we have also followed the patients in our uh, orthopedics uh, units. They were they need to be operated and they need to be staying there in the hospital for a long time. So we we always take care of them daily because as a nephrologist, we should be there, not the orthopedics or the infectious disease units only. The nephrology is very important because uh, you have to arrange the daily IV hydration and the electrolytes there, there should be changes in those and also we have to be careful about the post-acute uh, period like the, uh, the after the acute uh, process there will be a risk of uh, hyperuresis uh, so yeah. this should be all managed by the nephrologist and after that we hope that we uh, just uh, the patient is okay and everything is uh, arranged and the patient will be going to home. After that, we have to follow up the patients uh, and we, we are calling the patient in the first time like two weeks later but sometimes one week later since there were many crush and very, uh, injury per injury, the number of injury per people were, was very high in Turkey. So we follow them like in the first time like after one week and two weeks and later on we are following them every each month and after that we have to follow them also three months yeah. uh, months and three months because they have a risk of hypertension and chronic kidney disease and we have to be careful about the post effects of uh, acute kidney injury this is very important oh, very important yeah. and the follow-up is important because uh, it happened on February 6th or something so unless you cross the time of around three months we do not know how many patients are going to progress to the CKD yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's going to be an enormous uh, burden uh, yeah. and managing those patients is also equally important yeah. for us we have patients like uh, the diabetic old patients who, were, uh, who, who didn't get any injury mm -hmm. no uh, crash syndrome, no Nothing, crash injury yeah. but after uh, staying at the hospital like for a operation of a big trauma, uh, they develop also a kidney injury even though after one week later, even though they are not crashly uh, yes, yeah. crash mm -hmm. And the other thing about education for the population, uh, I'm a mother of two and I'm trying to teach my uh, children to be tolerant to everyone and I just try to make them travel all around the world to see the people that we are all safe. Yeah. Because uh, the wars and the things that are happening by man-made disasters. 
uh, uh, can be prevented by education and development. Mm -hmm. So I believe in this. And you know, man-made disasters can be a bad politician yes. and bad political issues, yes. and we are all same. Yes. So the thing that we have to teach our children to be tolerant yes. and to behave everyone with love, not the man also, not the woman beings, also animals. So I think this will be the solution. Yeah, avoiding man-made disasters, I think it should be a it should be a fundamental thing of the human life, humanity. That should be avoided. I think every mother should uh, listen to these words. Yes, yes, yes. I think it should be. Yes, I think it should be. I think it should be. As you have rightly pointed out, currently, the current generation of children, they get access to media, social media, especially, at a very young age. And there is so much of hatred, you know, and there's so much of difference of opinion, and that goes on to become rage. And this can affect children in a bad manner. And our children are the future citizens yes. of the world. As you've rightly pointed out, they are citizens of the world, not yes. not, not just a country or a region. Yes. So they should know how to love and respect each other. Yes. That's so a very good point. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Jika. Thank you for bringing out that. And thanks, Sibel, for bringing out such sensitive but stronger uh, thoughts, you know, which should be taken to the society. Milagros, your question. Yeah, okay, uh, as part of this task force that you represent of renal disasters, uh, how uh, can we empower patients and, and also healthcare, uh, renal health care professionals to take care of these situations? Because anxiety and depression are not only situations that, that patients live, but also doctors and nurses, and sometimes our lack of education it's like the lack of responsiveness on those situations and how uh, after working on our education how can we uh, go to write policies to attend this renal disaster not only the the nature uh, renal disasters but the man-made disasters so i think it's extremely important to support the healthcare personnel but again with preparation and with education and that they feel supported so that they are ideally functioning within a system they don't feel abandoned uh, that they have resources that they have resources also that help them to speak to the patients i think that there are other allied people who can help to find support if a patient needs shelter or transport or something like that there are people to help with that. Um, I think in terms of the doctors themselves, it's critical. If you think about it, whenever you're sitting on an airplane, yeah. they always tell you about this oxygen yeah. coming down, Go and they always say, put it first on you, on you then and then help the child. Yes. So that's critical, because I think we need the humility also to realize we're not machines. And we sometimes have this tendency to just work, work, work. We don't go home. We want to work 24, 48 hours without stopping. That's not good, because you're going to make mistakes. So I think. We need humility to understand we need to look after ourselves. And I think my experience in Haiti, mm -hmm. the doctors themselves, their houses were destroyed, part of their families were destroyed, and so they were, you know, also in shock. In shock. Having to come to work is very, very difficult. Or so the nurses who were suddenly living on the sidewalk were coming to work in clean clothes, you know, to try to do the dialysis. So I think the, the health system needs to understand that. I think in Turkey recently, as I said, they provided these containers that people could sleep in. So just thinking about how these doctors and nurses can get rest. 
think it's very hard to, to, to plan for these things. I think the biggest thing is just to then understand how to react because you have to understand this is a chronic problem. It's good. Like now, Ukraine is a year, Syria is 12, 13 years, yeah. Ethiopia is several yeah. years, you know, all these conflicts around the world that are happening for many years. And that's a big problem. And there so are many, I think many international organizations which will step in from the lines of the human land bank protection or something like that and give certain you know recommendations. It's not guidelines, but at least recommendations but for this one. I think all these humanitarian organizations are there, as she exactly said, displace populations into other countries. So that's what happened with Ukraine is that very rapidly the, Euro the European Union decided they were going to give free health care to any refugees, including dialysis. So, you know, they also provided them the resources and in some places accommodation, etc., etc. So I think there then, luckily, and there one can have preparation that there might be treaties or something yeah. not just in yeah. case. The problem is if you're too well prepared, it might give people to say, yes, I might as well go in and I can pay because there's a preparation, you know. So I think it would be terrible if we start to really prepare too well for wars. Yeah, yeah. Really it should be balanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming to speaking about the refugees, so how is the impact of these uh, refugees on the you know kidney care health services? Definitely, that also is going to have an impact. Though it looks like it's very you know neglected or probably subtle part of it, but then it's going to have a little more burden on the you know the, the receiving country. What's your opinion? So that? I think that the ISN and the ERA did a survey published in about 2015 in Europe. Because okay, that was yeah. when people were coming with boats across the, the Mediterranean in large numbers. And they realized only 1.5% of the dialysis population was actually refugees. So they're not such a big problem. No, yeah. I think um, most countries are willing to accept them. Some countries, and we're busy, we're about to launch actually. So hopefully, people who are watching this will look up right. this survey uh, coming up probably in a, in a, a month or so about okay. again in Europe what's happening with the right. migrants and the refugees. Because some countries only permit, and this is the same in, in North America, the refugees that come from South America, some mm. states only allow acute dialysis when patients are pulmonary edema or hyperkalemic. Others actually accept them onto the chronic dialysis program. Some countries actually even accept patients for transport. Yes, so we are just submitting a survey that we did with the Ukrainian task force in the ERA about what happened to the migrants from Ukraine, and this yeah. was just presented here actually by Professor Ivanov from Kiev, he presented the poster yesterday, there are about 600 people at least we know of that were then yeah. hosted in other countries, mostly in Poland, but a lot of the other countries around right. Ukraine, right. and basically they were just given dialysis, they were given everything they needed, yes. in some cases even listed for transportation, oh, a lot, several patients have gone back, so quite a lot of people went back, and this is the other thing, the country needs to be ready then to accept these patients right. back. Because many patients travel by themselves, not always with families. In Ukraine, they could, but men below a certain age, I forgot what age it was, 60 or something, weren't allowed to leave. Yeah, yeah. So, yes. you know, one also has to think that families are being split up with these migrant populations. But I think we need to avoid this idea that we think we just it's going to take all the space and take all the resources yeah. away from the existing Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that should not be. But the of the Ukraine crisis. Okay. I wish it was like that, because many, we have many refugees from Syria. Yeah and also from Ukraine, it's a very important issue. And those people from Syria, hasn't, uh, they don't have a regular checkup, right. and they don't have uh, kidney health care, yes. and so we have a big issue about that. I think this is an unexplored area probably, I think that needs to be looked into. So yeah, 
So I think we have last few minutes to go. So over to uh, Dr. Srikant regarding the question that we had missed. The value was mentioning was talked by you. Over to you. Uh, Dr. Valerie, my question is, uh, stockpiling of disposables is not a very sustainable solution to managing uh, uh, disaster-affected seagate issues. So, what do you suggest is a better uh, sustainable option? Yeah, stockpiling is a disaster. There's no way in the world you can keep enough supplies to meet the needs and things expire, yeah. etc. So again, you just have to identify where you can get things, ideally have some sort of deal in place in terms of payment because there's always money involved. Yeah. What we learned I think is nobody's willing to donate large quantities of anything yes. and often they don't even reduce the prices. So you know you need to know. We need a list of procurement people, ideally people in those agencies that you've already developed a relationship with who can respond fast. And then you need a way to actually ship the things in, fly them in with boats, traffic, uh, you know, trucks, whatever. So you need not only the procurement of the supplies, but you need to get them delivered and delivered to the right place um, safely. Exactly. So I think these things can be prepared in theory in advance. Yeah. So I think uh, last a couple of questions. What are the uh, solutions and educational perspectives to end the man-made natural disasters in this conflict? I think both of you can answer this. This is our final question for this session. What are the solutions, potential solutions for the well? Uh, you know. I think the worst uh, natural disaster is uh, even better than the uh, best man-made disaster. So okay, we have to a different be, statement. I think we yeah, have to be I prefer natural disasters instead of man-made disasters. So yeah. we have to be very careful. <coughs> we have to educate people. We have to be prepared for the worst thing, and we have to work together. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a difference between man-made and uh, you know uh, the natural natural disaster. Though it's a pinpoint, it's a short-lived man-made disaster. Though it is comes with an alarm, but it is a very long duration. As we are looking at your opinion on this one. Yeah, I just say I think as we discussed before, advocating for our and vulnerable course. population and taking some responsibility ourselves, so that we can participate in the response and not expect others to necessarily look after. But we need to identify who are all the stakeholders who can actually help and support. Um, just so that again we can provide as maximum support and you know holistic yeah. support Correct. to to the patients and the staff. So thank you, thank you. I think we have come to the end of the questions. So uh, we thank our guest speakers. A lot of expertise, and we have learned quite a lot. There are a lot of things that need to be explored, and a long way for us to go especially in the aspect of disasters focusing on this vulnerable group but then I think we should take lots of lessons from the disasters that are happening. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much well for joining us today. Thank you so well for joining us today. And of course the co-host of the program Dr. Shrikan, Dr. Villagos and we have to share your experience in Latin America as well. Thank you so much and thanks to the team behind the show, Kananda and Edward for being supporting us. Thank you so much and this will be made as a podcast and